Well, happy day, Labor Day weekend, Summit Church at all of our campuses across the Triangle. Uh, as I hope you have heard by now, um, two weeks from now, on September 15th, we are going to have uh, one joint service that meets at the Durham Bulls Athletic Park. Uh, all of our campuses around the Triangle will be together that day. Uh, we don't do this um, all the time, obviously, but we do it um, every once in a while because um, it is a great chance for us um, that we're spread out over the Triangle. It's a great chance for us to come together in one location um, to just celebrate what God is doing among us and to be able to do something in our community that we, we're not typically able to do. Um, there, it's a unique opportunity for us, and so I'm going to ask five things of you, okay, which I know is a lot before we even get into the message, but these are all five very important things. Number one is I want you to be there. Uh, be there. When we did this event back in 2011, last time we did it, um, I, you know, we had a huge attendance. It was great turnout, but I cannot tell you how many conversations I had after that with people like, oh, he didn't tell me it was going to be so awesome. I, I, you know, um, I had these plans, and I, I would have canceled my plans if you'd have told me how awesome it was going to be. Um, all right, now you know. Cancel your plans. Be there on September 15th. Number two, serve. Um, we have places for well over 1,000 volunteers that we need. 1,000 um, is a lot, and you, um, I, you're like, well, I haven't been at this church that long. It doesn't matter. Um, we'll train you on the spot. Um, we got spots for you in, um, in First Impressions, um, Summit Kids, Baptism Logistics. We're trying to baptize several hundred people that day, um, so we need help with that. You can help with our setup team or our teardown team. You can help with prayer um, in the event, before the event. Um, now, some of you from last time are like, oh, I didn't know you needed help. You didn't tell us you needed help. Like you think that the, you know, the magical summit fairy just comes along and sprinkles pixie dust and it just makes it all happen. Yeah, that doesn't happen. We don't have a magical summit fairy. Um, it's you. You're the summit fairy. Uh, don't take that too literally. But you're, um, uh, you're what makes this work, so we need you to volunteer. Um, so serve. Number three, invite. You got friends and coworkers and neighbors that you've been trying to get to come to church for months. Um, but, you know, there are people that just sometimes being in a church kind of creeps them out a little bit. And I don't know exactly why it is because what we're doing that day is church, but um, we have found by experience that there are people who will show up at this that just wouldn't normally come on a weekend here. Um, so invite them. In fact, um, one of our pastors was telling me um, that this week he was getting his car worked on and he was at a place where, uh, you know, he's like had a little waiting area with a TV in it and he was by himself in there and a lady comes in and asked him, she can change the channel. He said, sure. She turned it to the Little League World Series. He's like, oh, you like baseball? She's like, yeah, my son loves baseball. And he said, well, you know, why don't you come to church at the ballpark? She said, this is awesome. I'm going to bring my son and my dad who lives at the beach. He loves baseball. I'm going to get him to come too. Now, I'm not sure if she thinks we're playing baseball at the church at the ballpark. We are not, but whatever it takes to get her there. Um, number four, number four, give. Um, we are partnering with two organizations on that weekend, the Salvation Army Women and Children's Shelter and the Urban Ministries of Durham, um, both of whom have a focused area of ministering to, to the Triangle's homeless population. Now, we work with these guys all year long, but on that weekend, we're going to set up um, two trucks that they've given us a list of supplies that they need, and we just want to fill up those trucks with everything. I mean, there's going to be, you know, hopefully about 10,000 of us there. Um, how awesome would it be for us in one fell swoop to take care of all the needs that they have for the next six months? Um, so you can check that out. I'll tell you where in a minute. Number five is you can pray. Um, we've done a lot of planning for this. Uh, I, I think logistically we're ready for it, but you know as well as I do that unless the Spirit of God falls upon something like this, then it's all worthless. 
Um, we're going to try to present the gospel there as clearly as we can, um, but I need you to pray. Now, begin now, begin to pray daily, pray in your small group, sign up for one of the prayer teams, um, that we can pray that God will just do in this something that will blow our mind as we have a chance to come together in the heart of downtown Durham and just proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Um, so start praying, pray like a Pentecostal, um, you know, like name it, claim it, grab it, stab it, swing from the chandelier, whatever it takes. Um, if you don't know, like I don't know any Pentecostals, they're the ones that are yelling right now. Um, get connected to one of them and, uh, and they'll show you how to do this. Now, all this information that I just gave to you, volunteer sign up, um, needs for homeless ministries, details on the service itself, um, all that stuff is at a web, our website, churchattheballpark.com. Churchattheballpark.com. Visit there. You can sign up to volunteer and get all the information that you need. Also, when you leave, if you'll grab some of these inviter cards, um, and take a stack of these out and just give them out to anybody you know. Uh, litter the triangle in Jesus' name. Uh, it's okay just for this once, um, but uh, that'll, that'll be a big help. Okay? All right, I want to uh, talk with you today um, at our, our various campuses, Briar Creek, um, all of them, about the small decisions that we make um, that can have massive implications. Small decisions that we make that have massive implications in our, our, our lives. I first met uh, uh, the girl who had become my wife, Veronica, um, when she was, I met her at a high school student camp I was speaking at when I was in seminary. Uh, she was a counselor, by the way, not a high school student, just make that clear. And uh, I, I first saw her, she was part of the worship team and she was up leading worship and I thought she was the most beautiful girl that I had ever laid eyes on. In fact, I called my parents that week and told them that I had met the girl um, that I was pretty sure God wanted me to marry. If only I could have a conversation with her now, um, that would, would, would go a long way. And so I tried two or three times that week to strike up a conversation and uh, to put it plainly, she was quite rude to me. Um, I, I, in fact, one time she got up and walked away. I was in mid-sentence and she got up and walked away. A less confident guy would have assumed she wasn't interested. I just assumed she was nervous around me. Uh, and, and so I thought that was the explanation. Uh, well, basically after striking out all week long, the week ended and it was time for me to go home. I was walking my stuff out to my car and uh, I, I opened the, 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 the back door to put the stuff in. And I, I remember turning around and looking and seeing her standing with a group of friends um, up on the kind of the porch area of the cafeteria. And uh, I, I just kind of stood there for a minute because I had somewhere that I, I needed to be. I had a, an obligation and I thought, you know, I mean, is it time? You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. You know, should I just cut bait? And, uh, and so I kind of stood there in a minute for just sort of indecision. And then I put my stuff in, in the back and I shut the door and I turned around and I walked back. And the rest is, as they say, it's history. Um, sometimes I think about the massive and profound implications that came into my life through that one small decision to turn around and go back. And I didn't even make it with that much evidence to go on. Just the slightest glimmer of hope that I went back on and how much my life has changed. Uh, I mean, uh, Veronica is one of the most defining elements in my life right now. I have four children with her. Um, I, I, uh, uh, she says that the finished product you see here on the stage um, is nothing like the raw material that she encountered in 1997 uh, when we met. Um, a small decision that had a massive implication. And sometimes I just think, what if I had not turned around? Now, the point of that story, guys, is not that stalking a girl will always pay off, okay? Um, the line between confident and creepy is a subtle one, but it's one that's very important for you to, to get straight. I simply tell you that to show you how a small decision made with only the slightest glimmer of hope had a massive implication. 
And I tell you that because the main character in our final story, in our Elijah and Elisha series, made a small decision of faith that is going to have even more massive implications than my decision to turn around. And I want to show you his story to try to demonstrate for you that there are small steps of faith that you can make, some of which I'm going to try to draw out for you a little bit, small decisions of faith that you can make that are going to have massive implications for you. The biggest blessings in your life will come from small acts of obedience. Now, some a lot of people get wrong. A mentor of mine used to say it this way, it's never the dreams you dream, it's the decisions you make. It's not dreaming great dreams in a moment of like martyrdom that makes you into what God wants you to be. It's a series of small decisions, sometimes seemingly meaningless decisions that have profound and massive implications. And I want to try to persuade you to see what they are and grasp them when they are in front of you. Second Kings chapter five is where we'll be for our final story here in this something greater series, something better, something greater. Um, I will tell you this story is probably my favorite story in the whole Old Testament. I'm serious. I love this story more than David and Goliath. I love it more than Daniel and the lion's den. I love it more than Jonah and the big fish. Um, if you grew up in church, in Sunday school, you probably heard this story. In fact, you'll probably get images of flannel graph while I am telling it. Um, it take you back into that world for a minute. Um, so you probably heard if you grew up in church, but if you did not grow up in church, I would just about guarantee you have never heard this story ever. All right, here we go. Second Kings chapter five, verse one, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. Some translations, by the way, say Arameans, same thing, um, was a great and mighty man with his master. By the way, the word great is that word we looked at a few weeks ago, gadol in Hebrew, which just means larger than life, mighty. He was a mighty man in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Victory over whom, by the way? That's kind of important. Victory over whom? Israel. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now that's a huge but. Leprosy was the most feared disease in the world. It began in those days, or even today, it's now called Hansen's disease, but it began as a small patch of whitened skin, almost a powdery that would kind of break out into a rash. It would slowly spread over the whole body until it deadened the nerve endings. Your bodily extremities began to fall off like your fingers and your toes. Um, it would result in, in, in your facial features losing their shape. You would become grotesque to look at. Um, these sores and boils would break out all over your body until they ran with blood and pus and just being exposed in raw flesh. It was high, they believed it was highly contagious. There was no cure for it at all. You became hideous. They shunned you and put you outside of it. And you became really, I'm not trying to make light of this, but you became like a character on The Walking Dead. And so you were put outside. It was just the worst. It was a death sentence. You would be outside where you have to spend the next 10 or 20 years until you died in isolation. Verse 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, means the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. I'll write you a cover letter. So Naaman went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Scholars, by the way, say this was an enormous amount of money, 150 pounds of gold, 750 pounds of silver. 
You, you might think the clothing is a little bit odd, like, oh yeah, all this, and he went to South Point and bought some stuff from Nordstrom's. Uh, scholars say that this clothing in those days was very expensive, especially this kind of clothing. This would have been party clothing. Um, most people would never own a set of clothes like this. This is the kind of stuff you would wear if you got invited to the Oscars, you know, and you're a star, th this kind of stuff. Uh, so we've got 10, the man of God going to be blinging after this right here is what he's taking in. All right, verse six, when they brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I've sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. In other words, I know what he's up to. He's trying to pick a fight with me. He's given me an assignment I can never fulfill, and he's going to use this as an excuse for war. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king. Elisha, you see, didn't live near the palace. He was way out in kind of the backwoods. He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha, get this, perceived by the Spirit that there was a greater purpose in Naaman's leprosy, and that greater purpose was that Naaman come to know God. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. By the way, notice the plural. Um, this would not have been a subtle thing, and this would not have been impressive to the children of Israel. They're not out looking at it out their window going, oh, look at that cavalcade of escalades. I wonder who that is. They must be important. I mean, these are the Syrians that have raided their people. They're like, you know, you better hide your kids. You better hide your wife. You better hide your husband. They be snatching your people up, all right? Uh, so, sorry. Um, but they, that's what they did. And, they, so, and then he went and pulled them up and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Verse 10, and Elisha sent a, watch this, messenger to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Elisha didn't even go out to see him. Now, Elisha's house can't have been that big which means Naaman could probably look in there and see him sitting in there on the couch. How'd you like to have been that kid? I mean, that's like Vladimir Putin showing up at my house in my neighborhood, you know, with his little cavalcade of tanks and, um, you know, limos and the, you know, like a MIG or something that he shows up. And I send out one of my interns who says, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Putin, Dr. Greer has a busy afternoon and he is not able to see you today. Then he can look in there and see me with my, you know, my, my feet up on the couch watching TV. And he's like, but he says, if you'll go jump in this river and dip seven times or whatever you need, he's going to be taken care of. Okay, got to go. Sorry, bye. And turns around and goes back in the house. Well, Naaman, as you can imagine, is angry. And he went away, verse 11. Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand out and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I thought there'd be like a ceremony. You know, we'd all sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya for like eight hours and then um, I'd come out dressed in a white robe and walk on some hot coals, and he'd stand up, do a dance, sing a song, pray down some fire. There'd be a warm glow over the spot of my skin, and boom, he'd be gone. That's what I thought. I don't even get to see the man. Verse 12, are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, are not they better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash them and be clean? I mean, they're back where I live when I made this journey. Oh, and by the way, the Jordan River, you ever seen the Jordan River? You ever seen a picture of it? You ever been there? I have been there. I don't even know why they call it a river. I mean, really, it is not inspiring. You're like, oh, I'd like to be baptized in the Jordan River. No, you would not. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. You'd be, it's hard to get your head under that little trickle of water that runs through the middle of, uh, of Israel. It is not impressive. It's muddy. And he's like, why would I go dip in a creek? I got all these mighty rivers there. There's another 15 miles past where he was. It's way out of the way. So he turned and went away in a rage. 
And Naaman, Naaman's like the meatloaf of the Old Testament. I would do anything for healing, but I won't do that. I will not do that. And you children of the 80s that just got that reference, blessings on you. Okay, the rest of you, look it up. Rage, by the way, rage is the Hebrew word for heat, heat, which means his blood is boiling. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to prepare and I'm going to come back and I'm going to destroy this area. I, I, I know what this guy's trying to do. He's, he's trying to get me out here, get me out there in my skivvies out there in this little creek. There's going to be like 10,000 Israelites there. They're going to be laughing at me. I'm going to go down and dip in this thing seven times. I'm going to come back up as leprous as when I went in. And they're going to mock me and they'll be telling stories everywhere in Israel about stupid old Naaman. His blood is boiling. He's hot. Verse 13, but when his servants, there it is again, his servants came near and said to him, my father, if it was a great word the prophet had spoken to you, wouldn't you have done it? Didn't he just say to you, all he said to you was wash and be clean. In other words, if he told you to go get the berries off a plant on the other side of Mount Everest, you'd have done it. If he'd have told you to swim upstream one of these mighty rivers and clip the toenails off a dragon and make some broth with it, you'd have done that. All he told you was wash and be clean. Isn't that worth a chance? Isn't it worth at least taking a risk? What have you got to lose, name? And all you got to lose is your pride. So he went, verse 14, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And on that seventh time, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a baby. And he was clean. And can you imagine one time, two times, three times, no change, four times, five times, six times, nothing. He goes down that seventh time probably angrier than he was even before he went in the water. And he comes up that seventh time and suddenly that spot is gone and it's like the skin of a baby. I wonder how long he looked at that spot. Now comes probably the best part. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God. He and all of his company and he came and stood before him. First time face to face with Elisha. Stop for a minute. What would you say? This man just saved your life, right? He, he just healed you from leprosy. What would you say? It's, it's probably going to come out something like, thank you for saving my life and for restore, for cleansing me. That's what I'd say. What does he say? Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Not the first mention of leprosy. Not the first mention of healing. You remember what Elisha had said? God's purpose in this was not just to cure a leper. God's purpose was to introduce a sinner to God. Naaman wasn't looking for God. He was looking for a cure for leprosy. But God used his search for a cure to lead him to something even greater than the cure for leprosy. What if God, here's my question for you. What if God in your pain had something beyond, better than the cure for your ailment? And what if it was something so valuable that after you got it, you'd forget to even mention the healing that you got for your ailment? But let me take all the what ifs for, for a minute, because here's what I've learned. I've learned that all of us, regardless of how well our lives seem like they're together on the outside, have an area or two that we would just rather keep covered. And on the outside, everybody thinks you got it all together. You're successful. Half the time, you believe it too. But then in a moment of sobriety, or maybe it's when you're alone, or maybe it's at night, or just something triggers it, this area of brokenness will get exposed, a secret habit that you can't break. How many executives do I know who have everything together but have a habit that keeps them on the internet till 1 a.m. that they're terrified of actually being exposed one day because they know what it'll do to their family? Or maybe it's a problem you can't resolve. Something in your past that you can't shake that every once in a while will rear its ugly head. 
Or maybe it's just a deep, unsettled unhappiness, invisible to everyone else, but that is rotting you on the inside. Or maybe it's a secret, paralyzing fear that when it comes out, it just, it just destroys you. It could be a fear of your own mortality. It could be a fear of your, of your wife leaving you. It could be a fear of something happening to your children. Or maybe you've come up against an obstacle that you feel powerless to overcome. A health setback, the loss of a loved one. You lost your job. Last time this year, or last year this time, you, life looked a whole lot different than it does right now. Because there's something that's come up. It's a spot that you would love for God to take away. What if God's purpose in that problem is to get you to ask a bigger question? And what if that was a question so big that when you got it answered, it would make the problem that you're dealing with seem so trifling that you almost forget to mention it? What if what you weren't looking for was 10,000 times greater than what you were looking for? What if God really was his own greatest reward? What if he was the pearl of great price? What if he was the treasure hidden in a field that after you found him, you'd be willing to let everything else in your life go, including healing for leprosy after you had found the treasure in him, so much so that you forgot to even mention it when you finally stood in front of him? What if there was something so valuable that whenever you do finally stand before God, the first thing that comes out of your mouth is not what he did about that problem, but what he did in reconciling you to himself? What if that happens? Now, I'm not trying to give you this weekend a full explanation of why people suffer. That's not my purpose. It's just simply to get you to ask this question if you've never asked it. What if God had a greater purpose in your pain? The point of this story is not that every leper who heads out of the Jordan River is going to find healing for leprosy. The point of this story is to show you how sinners find God, or better yet, how God finds sinners. But before I explain that to you and unpack that, let me finish the story because it's just way too good. In fact, what I'm about to share with you has very little to do with the plot of what I'm going to explain as the point, but I just can't. It's just too good. You have to finish it. So accept now a present from your servant, says Naaman to Elisha. But he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. A fabulously wealthy guy wants to give a gift to a pastor, but he refuses. I don't know of any other situation in the world where that has ever happened. It has certainly never happened here, okay? But see, Elisha knows that to receive this gift might confuse everybody watching. Remember, Naaman had started this process thinking that he could purchase this miracle by his riches, and he ended up giving this, if he ended up giving this gift, even in gratefulness, it might lead people to assume that he had been able to purchase it. And the one thing, the one thing that has to be understood about the gospel is that it is a free gift of grace. The false religion of man, every false religion of man operates on this principle. God, I'm gonna do for you and you're going to owe me. The gospel of God switches that and says, no, God will do everything for you and you will owe him everything for eternity. Verse 17, well, Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, of dirt, For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. Now, that's quite a jump, isn't it? Well, if you won't take my $500,000, could I have a couple wagon loads of dirt? Cup of dirt, you know, can I have that? What is going on? Scholars say what he's going to do, what he's planning to do is he's planning to spread out that dirt whenever he offers a sacrifice because he's going to sacrifice it to God. But he's going to be on Syrian land, and he feels like it'd be more honoring to God if he would sacrifice it to God in Israel. So if he can't live in Israel, he's going to take part of Israel to there. 
Now, right? By the way, that is never in the Bible. That is never an instruction given. He just made that up. He just made that up. But it gets better. Verse 18, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my, watch this, when my master goes into the house of Ramon, who's Ramon? That's a false god. When my, when my master, the king, goes into the house of, of the false god to worship there and he's leaning on my arm, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha says, go in peace. What? I mean, I'll be honest with you. At first, I struggle with this. I'm like, why? Because I'm expecting Elisha to be like, uh-uh. Unless you take up a cross and, you know, forsake all, and unless you, you know, put your hand on the plow, never look back, you will never be fit for the kingdom of God. That's what I'd have said. Am I right? And what's Elisha say? All right. I'm like, what is the point of that? Here's the point, I believe. Naaman's obedience is imperfect, but it's a start. And God receives it. And to be honest with you, I feel like a lot of Christians forget this. They talk like you come to Jesus and bam, you know, you turn into overnight this mature, spirit-filled, radical Christian, right? Your relationship with your wife suddenly, boom, transforms. Your kids, you know, are awesome now. And all your gangster rap music on your iPod transforms into a harp instrumental overnight. It just happens. That's not true. You start out as a baby. You crawl, you drool, you run into stuff. You break things, and that's okay, because you're coming the right direction. God, you see, is a very compassionate Father, and if you're serious about repentance, He's serious about receiving you no matter how screwed up your life actually is, and how long it takes us to unscramble that and for you to become somebody who walks with Jesus. I'm not excusing compromise, and neither is Elisha. He's just simply recognizing that there is a path of maturity that you have to walk down, and I feel like a lot of Christians forget that. And a lot of you come here, and this is probably the worst effect, you come here and feel like immediately you got to start acting like you're a mature Christian and like everybody's judging you. I realize people do that, but they shouldn't be doing it because we all understand that if we expose to you all the things in our life, you'd see we aren't that mature and radical either, yeah. right? So what you got to do is you got to get going the right direction and you got to let God work this out in you. All right, let me draw for you the bigger point in this story that I, I told you about. Naaman's story is going to tell, tell how each of us will meet God. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to use the rest of my time to show you two things I'm going to show you, first of all, why Naaman came to God. And then secondly, I'm going to show you how Naaman came to God. So why he came to God, then how he came to God. So number one, why Naaman came to God. Let's think about Naaman for a minute. Naaman was the ultimate insider, was he not? Right? I mean, you couldn't get more into the inside circle than Naaman was. He had everything. He, he, was, he was a very successful general. He was a hero. He was a celebrity. When it says he's highly regarded, that's what it means. Everywhere he goes, people buy him dinner, pay for his drinks right? Uh, it, it, he's the prime minister. When it says he's on the king's arm, he's the king's friend, that's what it means. He's the ultimate insider, but he is about to become the ultimate outsider. Leprosy puts you on the outside faster than anything else, because not only would it destroy your strength and disfigure you, the moment people knew that you had it, they'd shun you on the outside because they thought it was so contagious they didn't want to be around you. In Israel, you'd have to shout, unclean, when somebody got within 30 feet of you. Leprosy was a sentence of banishment and death. Naaman had found the spot of death. We don't know when, where it was, but he took off his armor one day and there it was, that little patch. But Naaman would never have found God if it had not been for that spot. His spot of death became his portal of eternal life. So here's my question for you. Do you have a spot? Do you have something that feels to you 
like a sentence of death. Again, a need that you just can't overcome. For the first time, your marriage is dissolving and you don't know what to do with it. Or maybe it's something going on with your children. Maybe you've just had children and you've suddenly felt overwhelmed about the responsibility. Maybe it's a habit that you can't break. Maybe it's guilt. Something in your present, something in your past, you feel like it's going to be with you forever. I think of that scene in Lady Macbeth where she's, in, in Macbeth where she's, you remember this where Shakespeare, out damned spot. How do I get rid of this spot? Because nothing I try can overcome it. A dull unhappiness, thoughts of your own mortality, a health scare. What if God had a greater purpose in that spot? And it was to show you an even deeper, more insidious spot that he was trying to get your attention with. I, several years ago, I got to know a, a professional athlete or a guy that had just gone professionally, played for one of our local universities here, signed a contract for several million dollars, made a really stupid decision that led to an accident that took away his ability to play professional sports. And because it was a stupid decision, he nullified his contract, which means he didn't get anything, nothing. And I remember him sitting there with me, pouring it out, tears running down his face and saying to me, I cannot believe I gave everything away for a few seconds of enjoyment from this stupid decision I made. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be Elisha, but essentially I saw the same thing that Elisha saw through the Spirit of God. He's like, well, I think there's something a whole lot bigger at work here. And that is, I think God was trying to show you that you were about to throw away your entire eternity with God over a few seconds of fame and money that you were going to achieve on the athletic field. And what if God had a bigger purpose in that accident than simply what you're thinking? And what if what you most need is not just healing from this accident? What if you need is restoration to God? What if God puts you flat on your back so that finally in that position you would be looking the right direction? What if God had a greater purpose for that spot, and it was to show you, see, something deeper that was really broken in your life. And maybe you would have never thought about it until that spot appeared. Maybe your spot is that you really want to be a part of that inner ring, like Naaman was. You're like, well, that's what I want to be is where Naaman was. C.S. Lewis wrote an, um, uh, um, uh, an essay years ago called The Inner Ring. If you've never read it, it's great. Um, but he basically said there are three groups of people. Well, first of all, he said, everybody, everybody has what they consider to be an inner ring. Now, depending on your career field or your personality, it's different, but everybody's got the inner group and we all want to be a part of that group. So if you're a high school guy, when you're in, you know, high school, it's almost always the athletic, you know, kind of the jock kind of guy that you want to be a part of that group. And you're very aware of who's inside and who's outside. As you mature, it changes. You know, then when you're older, it becomes like, I want to be a part of the guys who make a lot of money and do this over here. And you're very aware of who's in and who is out. Lewis said, you got three groups. You got people who are in, who are worried about one day getting kicked out. He says, then you got people who are not in, but really want to be in. And then you got people who have given up on the pursuit of trying to get in, and they're now cynical, and they just self-righteously make fun of all the other people who are trying to get in. And when I read that in college, I thought that explains my entire high school experience right there. Because you look around the cafeteria and you can see these three groups. You got the in, right? You got in different ones, but you got the, you know, like for guys, you got the jock group and the cool guys. And then you got the guys who want to be a part of that group. And then you got a group of you know, people over on the other side of the cafeteria who were kind of the, you know, they're kind of the, I don't know, whatever they are, goths or deadheads or whatever. They're just kind of like, oh, we just self-righteously, we're giving up on that. But essentially, it's all the same thing. They feel like outsiders and we want to be insiders. 
And Lewis said the reason that we're like that is because instinctively we know we're on the outside. And so what we want is we want to be on the inside of some ring that will tell us that we're on the inside. He said, but we don't, what we fail to realize is that outsideness goes back way deeper than that ring that we're thinking about. We're on the outside of God's ring. He said it goes back to a little mysterious scene in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve, the first effect of their sin was, I've told you this before, what was the first effect of Adam and Eve's sin? They felt naked. And Lewis said, no matter who you are, how much you've accomplished, if you're naked, you feel like you're on the outside, right? You follow that? If you're naked, I don't care how much, how much money you have, what kind of car you drive, if you're sleepwalking and you suddenly in these next few minutes come to at our campus and you're like, ah, I'm buck naked. Right? It doesn't matter that you drove a Lexus here this morning and that you make $500,000 a year. You want to get on the outside. That's what nakedness does. And Lewis, what he said was, the ultimate spot you see is sin. And the circle that we've been excluded from is God's circle. And so leprosy is for us a picture of sin, which is why it's talked about so much in the Bible. Because sin deadens. It grows in you and corrupts you. More and more over time, you lose feeling. Your soul has a disease, and it's terminal. And I don't know if you ever realize that. Maybe you never have. Most people don't. But all these little spots are just pointing you to the fact that there's a real spot, and that spot is terminal, and it's growing because the wages of sin is death. For all have sinned, see, and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. They've all together become unprofitable. We have turned away and gone into our own way. The soul that sins, it shall die, because it's been appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You carry around in you the sentence of condemnation of death, and one day you're going to stand before God, and all that's going to be exposed, and all that leprosy is going to be out there, the leprosy of the soul, and you're going to stand condemned. And if God's got to put you flat on your back with another thing to finally get you to consider where you stand with God and the condition of your soul, then you will learn to call it a good thing. That's why Naaman came to God, is because God put him on his back that showed him a deeper problem, and that was the spot of leprosy on his heart. Number two, how Naaman came to God. How Naaman came to God. Why Naaman came to God, now how Naaman came to God. I'm going to identify kind of three things here. The first one we'll call a searching humility. A searching humility. Did you notice that throughout this story? Did you notice? I'm sure you did. That throughout this story, Naaman keeps trying to go to kings, and God keeps, keeps sending him to slaves. The story begins with a Hebrew servant girl, which is about as low as you can get in Syria. She's Hebrew, which means she's part of a despised race. She's a servant, she's a female, and she's a kid. You can't get lower than that. She's the one that tells Naaman where his healing will be found. So where does Naaman go? Does he go to, does he go, no, he goes to the king who sends him to the other king who is terrified and doesn't know what to do. When Naaman finally gets to Elisha, he is greeted by an assistant, an intern. When Naaman rejects the prescription, the ones who talk him back from the edge and convince him to finally do something are whom? The servants. Naaman shows up with a mass of money and power that no one else in his day would have been able to put together, and Elisha dismisses it out of hand and says, don't want it, don't need it, ain't going to do you any good at all. Elisha tells him to go dip in a muddy creek seven times. Naaman says, I'd rather swim in the mighty rivers of Syria. And Elisha says, well, you can do that all day long if you want. It's never going to change anything until you go dip in that creek in obedience. What's the message in all that? God does not save through the strength of men. Your money, 
your strength, your moral rectitude, your righteousness, your religion, your goodness, your culture, your upbringing, your power, all worthless in the sight of God. God saves by grace through faith. Salvation for men was not found in their ingenuity. It's not found in their achievements. It's not found in their morality. It's not found in their religion. It's not found in their science. It's not found in their education. It's not found in the indomitable spirit of man. Salvation for the human race was found in a despised man who died on a cross, whom we thought so little of, we crucified and just forgot about. You see, the first thing the cross does when it comes to you is it destroys your pride. The cross shows you that God's verdict on your life was death. You ever think about that? Because unless the gospel has really insulted you, you've probably never understood it. Because the first thing the cross does is it goes to war if you're pride. What's the verdict on your life? By the way, you ain't gonna hear this from Dr. Phil. You ain't gonna hear from Oprah. What's God's verdict on your life? Condemnation, death. You wanna know how God sums up your life? You wanna know what obituary he would write? He wouldn't write an obituary. He'd put a picture of a cross there and be like, that's what you deserve. And it destroys your pride because it shows you that not only was that the condemnation that you deserve, that's God's verdict on your life, it shows you you were powerless to do anything about it. Jesus wasn't up there on the cross saving the world with his disciples as a team effort. They'd all forsaken him. He died alone because only God could save. And until you come to that point of absolute powerlessness and hopelessness, you will never understand the grace of God that's given as a gift, not that your strength, not that your goodness. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That's the gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast. See? Grace is hard. And the reason most people are not profoundly changed is because they've never really thought about grace, or they've never considered what it means. A friend of mine told me this. Um, he was spent up this summer. Um, with a bunch of, uh, at, at this place out in Colorado where they do these, um, it's like a kind of a wilderness adventure thing, and they have about 30 college students that will spend the summer there, and he said they, they kind of go through all these character lessons, and he said, so he said they were all assigned a book to read before they got there. He said that the first day, um, the, the instructor looks out at all 30 of these students and said, how many of you read the book? About half of them raised their hand, the other half are, you know, we're all, they're all college students, so you know, some did, some didn't. So he didn't say anything, he just writes their names down, the ones who didn't, the ones who didn't you know, read. So about two weeks later, um, they're taking one of their hikes up one of the mountain peaks. It's about a four-mile hike. He said, we get about two miles into the hike, and he says, we're with a smaller you know, group now. He says, okay, so everybody stop. He said, how many of you read the book now? He said, look, still about half of people read the book. He said, okay, those of you who didn't read the book, I want you to take off your 75-pound pack, because they were you know, planning to spend overnight. Take it off. I want you to set it on the ground. And those of you who did read the book, I want you to pick up their pack, and I want you to strap it on the back of your pack so you're not carrying 75 pounds, you're not carrying 150, and you're going to walk the rest of the two miles up to that peak carrying the pack of those who didn't, who didn't read. Who do you think got angry? My friend said that it was remarkable because not the first word of complaint was heard from the people who carried the double load. He said, but the people who had taken their pack off and set it down because they didn't do what was right for two miles walking, scot-free with no burden at all to the top, he said they were humiliated, they were enraged. He said, one girl, he said, I thought she was going to quit on that trip because she was so embarrassed. Your soul hates grace. And yeah, it's going to become beautiful to you one day but only after it's taken you through this path of humiliation. And if you've never felt the sting of the cross, when I survey the wondrous cross, 
on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain, I count but loss. That's a, that's a little trite phrase to throw out there. What's your richest gain? You count it as loss and pour contempt on all my pride? That whole like line that I heard growing up about how you gotta, you, you gotta take pride in yourself and you gotta be your man and you gotta be all that, you gotta respect yourself. Yeah, I poured contempt on all that because the cross said that God's verdict on my life was not there's a man to respect, is there's a man to condemn. And I fell at Jesus' feet and he gave me grace and grace became sweet, but only after I tasted the bitter pill of the cross. Do you have the humility to come to Jesus? See, most people, that's why they'll never come to, to him. They don't have the humility to get there to admit that God saves, they can't save themselves. Let me show you one other place that Naaman showed humility. Think about how much humility it took for Naaman to cross that border. Basically what he was saying is, healing for my disease is not found in all the things that I've taken pride in and been confident in and the mighty Syrian doctors. Healing is found in those despised people that I've been looking down on all my life. Naaman had to be open to the idea that the salvation he sought would come from outside the things he normally took pride in and in which he had usually found confidence. Maybe that's where you are this weekend. Maybe, maybe you're here. Every week we have people here that just kind of come in here because a friend invited them. They're not really sure why they're here. Maybe you lost a bet. That happens from time to time. And somebody will be here like, I'm here to pay a debt because I lost it and I had to come. And you're looking around, and I'm not trying to be overly personal, but you're looking around, you're watching this morning, you're thinking, I think these people, I'm educated differently. I'm more educated than most of these people. I don't come from this kind of, I, politically, I vote different. I, I know some of the bumper stickers coming in here and these uneducated people. And you just feel like, You've built an identity on a certain thing, but there's something in you, and maybe God for you, maybe we're like the Israelites, and you're like Naaman, and the question is, do you have the humility to cross the border and question your convictions, and maybe doubt whether or not you're wrong? Lewis said the reason most people never find God is most people are always looking down on others in their life, and God only speaks from above. He said, because you're always looking down on others, you never see the face of God or hear the voice of God. And do, so here's my question, do you have the humility to be open to the fact that you might be wrong. And maybe the things that you found so much confidence in have not given you what you need, and maybe it's a despised people to you. Maybe it's a despised group that God's gonna use to give you the most important message of your life. You have the humility to do that? That's the first element, is a searching humility. Here's the second element. This one's so subtle, y'all, that you probably read right over top of it. This is a character in the story that has seemed so minor but she, the whole story depends on her, a suffering servant. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl. Can you imagine the horror of that? This girl is a victim of human trafficking. The fact that she is a captive means that, listen, at best, her family was taken captive and sold a slave somewhere else in Syria. At worst, it means she watched them butchered in front of her eyes. This is the little girl. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Well, who does that probably indicate conducted the raid? Naaman. Right? I mean, he's the captain of the Syrian army. Somehow, remarkably, she seems to have been able to forgive him. She doesn't say, ha ha, old goon's got leprosy. Serves him right. Now I get to watch his decrepit old body fall apart and cheer as every digit falls from his body. God is giving him what he deserves. It's what I would have done, right? You too, probably. She 
speaks about him with anything with tenderness. Would that my Lord could get to this prophet because he could cure him. Somehow, a little 14-year-old girl had the faith to say, I'll let God be God. I'll let God be Naaman's judge. And for now, I'll just forgive and love Naaman. She was suffering through no fault of her own. If anything, her suffering was caused by Naaman's sin. And in some great irony, her suffering caused by Naaman's sin became Naaman's salvation. If you're saved, see, you will be saved by a suffering servant. This sweet little unnamed girl gave us one of the clearest Old Testament pictures of Jesus. Jesus suffered like this little girl, like her. He's the ultimate outsider. He didn't come as a king. He came as a carpenter. Like her, it was not his own sin that he suffered for. It was ours. Unlike her, he entered into that suffering voluntarily. She had no choice. She was just taken captive. She was stripped from her family involuntarily. Jesus left his father voluntarily to come to earth to save us. No man took his life from him, he said. He laid it down of his own accord. This girl was just a girl. Jesus was a mighty prince who ruled the universe, who chose to become a slave, though he was in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, but instead turned his back on that, took the form of a servant, humbled himself, and became obedient, obedient to the point of the death of the cross. This girl simply told Naaman about Elisha, who told him about the river. Jesus spilled his blood to become the river in which we would bathe and wash our sins away. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing in the same river, right? The Jordan River, Matthew chapter 3. And as he's baptized, it's called a baptism of repentance. And so essentially what that means is you go into the water, you would confess your sins, that you're a sinner, and then John would say, I baptize you, insert name, as a sinner, and I baptize you, and you come up symbolizing you're starting a new life, and God was washing you clean, and you're starting something new. Well, as John's doing all this, one day... A man works his way through the crowd and steps into the water and says, I want to be baptized. And John the Baptist sees this as Jesus and rightfully objects and says, why would you want to be baptized in a baptism of repentance? What have you got to repent of? You've never sinned. That's a good question. And what does Jesus say? No, no, let it be so because I need to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness. He's already as righteous as can be. He can't be any more righteous than he is. So whose righteousness is he fulfilling? He's fulfilling my righteousness. You see, he's going to get in and be baptized in repentance for my repentance and for my sin. Imagine that everybody had to wear their sins on their chest like a name tag. Your name and all your sins. It was as if Jesus was walking through that crowd, pulling off people's name tags and putting them on himself so that when he got in the water, he didn't represent himself anymore. He was repenting for our sin. See, he took our sin and our sorrow and he made it his very own. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Right, but we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted because after he would come out of that baptism, he was going to go the rest of his ministry here, living the life that you and I were supposed to live, praying the prayers we were supposed to pray, walking the way we were supposed to walk. But then he was going to die the death that we were condemned to die in our place so that his blood, when it came out, would be a river in which we could wash our sins away. So that we would sing a song like this, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
If you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved by humility, but you're also going to be saved by a suffering servant who's going to do it in your place so that he can give you his righteousness because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. See? You're saved by a searching humility. You're saved by a suffering servant. Number three, you're saved by a simple act of obedience. You're saved by a simple act of obedience. Naaman had only to believe and submerse himself in the river to be healed. You and I have only to trust in Jesus and submerse ourselves into his fountain to be healed, right? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him, that's it. Believe in him and trust in him and surrender to him would not perish but have everlasting life. Naaman came up out of that water with skin like a baby. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You have a terminal disease. You got it. Jesus took it. He took it, and he took it, and he buried it, and he took it away so that when you would trust in him, you would get his righteousness, his healing, the power of his resurrection would go to work in you because he had taken your sin and your corruption, and he had put it away in those waters. It's a simple act of obedience, but it leads to a life-changing, eternity-changing result. After you do that, the Bible says the first thing you're supposed to do, no, watch this, first thing you're supposed to do after you're saved is you're supposed to be baptized. Baptism is a picture of what just happened. I mean, you got a great picture over here with Naaman, right? You go into the water, you're coming up clean. Baptism is a, is a symbol of how Jesus took you into himself and washed you of your sin. Now, here's the, I've done this long enough, but here's the number one, we got a lot of people listening to me right now who've never been baptized. And here is what they say. They're always like, well, I just don't see it being that important. It's an, an inconvenient, it's a little embarrassing get them get soaking wet in front of everybody and it's just inconvenient and all this kind of do you hear the spirit of Naaman in that who are you telling God that what he's commanded is not is not is not important it's not that the commandment obeying it does anything to you it's that God uses that as for as a portal in which he begins to pour his power and his presence into your life that's what's going on there you see it's the spirit of Naaman it's the same thing all over again I've told you there's nothing magical about the water I mean, it's Durham City tap water. You'll be dirtier when you come up than when you went in. We, I know that. It's that a small act of obedience becomes a portal for life. It's where God begins to pour himself out to you. We're not baptizing today. But some of you need to make that decision. So you never trusted Christ. That's the decision you make. Some of you need to be baptized. Maybe, believer, there's some other act of obedience. Maybe God's telling you to stop something. You don't understand why it's that important, but you know God's telling you that. Maybe God's telling you to break out with somebody. And see, what you don't realize is that God's got the rest of your life, unbelievable blessing, but you'll never experience it until the simple act of obedience. Until you do this, God can't give you this. So don't trifle with obedience because God always has more for you than you probably realize. Maybe he's told you to start something. Maybe it's a ministry. Maybe it's a new career. Maybe, um, it's, uh, maybe, it, maybe you need to join the church or start a small group or start to give generously. Maybe that's what God's been speaking to you about, is starting to sacrifice. You have no idea what God has waiting for you, but it comes through a simple act of obedience. You'll never see it because it's not the commandment. It's not getting in the water. It's, it's what God begins to do. See? Maybe, how about this one? Maybe like this little girl. God's told you to share Christ with somebody, and you're scared because it's somebody important. And this little girl, she has to go up to Naaman, and she has to share Christ with a guy who could have her killed. Maybe that's what God's saying is, hey, I need you to tell this person about me. And you're not doing it because you're afraid. You realize what could happen in their life and in your life if you would open up that portal for life. 
A simple act of obedience leads to an eternity change for them and in many ways a life-changing experience for you. Or how about this? Maybe God's told you to forgive. Maybe like this little girl, God said, you got to forgive and you're hanging on because you're like, I got to nurse this wound. I got to nurse it. Do you realize what God could do? In your, this girl gave us a picture of Jesus. We're talking about 3,000 years later. You know what kind of blessing God could put in your life if you would obey that and you would forgive? Not to mention the blessing that could come from the person to the person that you forgive. Great blessings of God come through small acts of obedience. Jesus promised it this way, John 14, 21. He said this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he will be loved by my Father and I will love him and I'll manifest myself to him. You, you hear it? Manifest? It's a whole lot more than you thought. You obey the commandment, and all of a sudden, God makes himself known to you. God reveals himself through small acts of obedience. What's the act of obedience that you need to yield to? Why don't you bow your heads with me, if you would, at all of our campuses. What is it? At our campuses, those of you at BC South, listen, what is it? You need to trust Christ? You've never done that before? It's a simple prayer. Again, it's simple. Jesus, I yield fully to you, and I receive you as my Savior. If you've never prayed that in sincerity, do it right now. Jesus, I trust in you as my Savior, and I yield control of my life to you. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. You plunge yourself right now underneath that flood. You need to be baptized? Again, we're not going to give you a chance today, but once you make up your mind right now, I'm going to be baptized. Two weeks from now, church of the ballpark. God, give me the courage. I'm going to do it. With your heads bowed, i got an action step for you. Keep your heads bowed, but your worship guide, there's a little thing you can indicate that. Just check it off on the bottom that says, I want to be baptized. Put your name on it and drop it in the offering when it comes by. Take that first simple act of obedience that's going to become a portal for life. Believer, what is it? What is it God's telling you? I'm not the Holy Spirit. I cannot tell you. But you know. I'm just going to give you a couple moments here. And all of our campuses, our worship teams will come back up. But you keep your heads bowed. I just want you to deal with the Holy Spirit here for the next few moments. And our worship teams, when they're ready, will come and they'll lead you back to the feet of Jesus to worship and adore. You do your business with God and they'll come.